So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, December the 23rd, and this is episode number 189 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. My name is Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. I'm not going to tell you what the temperatures and wind speeds are and everything else right now because they're widely variable and hopefully I put it at the beginning of the video right along with that little squirrel that was out there struggling to get seeds underneath the bird feeders. So we're kind of at the leading edge of that big storm that's coming out. Hopefully those of you who are in North America, if you're in Australia, good for you. Things are probably nice and warm and super great down there. But uh, we've got a major storm going on. 54 to 55 mile per hour wind gusts are already here. So the beehives are already strapped down. That's the good news. That's all I did yesterday was preps for today. So the fire's going. And even in this room, which normally I don't hear much, I can hear the wind blowing. So really strong. The good news is, for me anyway, to the north of us, they're getting heavy snow. And here in the snow belt... We're actually not getting a lot of snow, but just the high winds and extreme cold. Wind chills down uh, into the 20s, minus 20s. And I know for a lot of you that's nothing. But for us here, that's some pretty hostile territory. So what we're going to do is uh, answer the questions and discussion topics that were submitted over the past week. And you'll find those down in the video description below. And... Uh, you can see what we're going to talk about. There'll also be some related links, important stuff for those of you who want to follow up and go beyond today's video. If you're not a subscriber already, I invite you to. Don't miss a single episode. There's only two more sleeps till Christmas. So hopefully you've done all your Christmas shopping and everything else. And so I just wish you all in the onset a happy holiday season. So yes, uh, somebody first question, they wanted to know if I was going to do a Q&A today. And if not, Merry Christmas and all of that. Well, yeah, I am. I'm going to do one because I'm here anyway. All snug inside. And the electricity is working. So our electricity hasn't gone out yet. Thank goodness. If it does, I, well, you're seeing it. So I guess it the electricity didn't go out. So the very first question that we're going to get to here is from Robert, who lives in Lakanto, Florida. I'm almost at the end of my first year of beekeeping. Followed by bee losses here in central Florida, and it's been one of many learning mistakes. In my neighbor's very large oak tree is a feral beehive. It has been a constant source of bees robbing for the past few months, so is there any reason not to just leave my robbing screens on all year round? I'm hoping to catch some swarms from the hive in the spring, in an effort to even the playing field, or at least making me feel better about the situation. I recently saw an article about bee robbing being very bad in Florida this year. So is that true? Those of you who are watching from the state of Florida, was this a really bad year for robbing? Uh, and it can be bad wherever you are. If there's a dearth, there's robbing. So if there's a beehive nearby and it's very strong and productive, and then there are weaker colonies nearby. They're targets for robbing when there aren't any resources coming in from the environment. So that's a struggle. And I'm, I have three suggestions. First of all, the robbing screens, they're good, but they're supposed to be temporary. And they do create, you know, an additional barrier going in and out of the hive. And the reason that they're temporary, the resident bees figure it out pretty quick. And the whole point of it is to foil robber bees that are unfamiliar with the entrance location of the hive. So the resident bees figured out, they come and go through it. 
any entrance will eventually be figured out by the robbers and of course the resident bees already know it but uh, so when you leave it stationary and you keep it uh, fixed there year round just a matter of time before even that uh, no longer becomes a barrier for robbing so you have three really decent choices for helping to reduce robbing so what we want to do is create a smaller opening that your resident colony can better defend so the very first thing that comes to mind is the entrance reducer on your hive. Some people change their entrance reducer sizes through the year. So entrance reducers, um, I've left mine static pretty much all year now. So summer and winter, they're pretty much the same size. The height is bee space, three-eighths of an inch. And uh, that's because then I don't have to put on mouse guards when it comes wintertime. Like what's going on right now where we have the deer mice acting like little gymnasts and doing crazy running and jumping from hive to hive. It's amazing what they do. But if it's three-eighths of an inch or smaller, they can't get in. And it doesn't matter what the width is as far as being a mouse guard. So that's one thing. The other thing is smaller colonies, weaker colonies are prone to being robbed. And often when they've lost their queen, they're more prone to being robbed also because those that are in the hive, their numbers are just being reduced day by day, week by week until they dwindle away and they can't defend the resources that they have and just a few guards get through and start to rob the resources. So we need to know the status of our colonies. Are they queen right? Is everything else going well in there? And it's not a time to put a bunch of feet on where robbers can also sense it and get to it. So if you've got upper entrances, for example, and you've got feet on top of your hive that's accessed from inside, that upper entrance also becomes another weak point that has to be defended by the resident bees. So I recommend a single entrance, a small entrance. So aside from the three eighths by an inch and a half wide to two inches, and it can go all the way down to an inch in width if this is a really small colony, and especially now that we're going into winter. Another thing is called the hive gate. This is the hive gate. If you've never seen it, this has been out now for a couple of years. This is my second winter with it. And I would say that one of the strong suits of the hive gate is, although the inventor says there are a whole bunch of other thermodynamic uh, air movement benefits to it, but the strongest thing that I've uh, received information about from other beekeepers across this country anyway, has been that it reduced their losses to robbing. And in particular, like in Washington state, where yellow jackets uh, take out hive after hive, colony after colony with these in place, the resident colony had a much better opportunity to defend. So what do we do? We created a long entrance. So if a robber bee gets in here, they don't immediately get to scoot in and head right up into the comb the way they'd like to. Now they have to travel all the way through this lengthy piece and their chances of engaging guard bees here is much higher. Therefore, robber bees, that's why when we see robbers, they really don't want to have to fight their way in. They're always scooting around from the sides and from the back. And that's why you see them flying underneath the hive at the back of a hive at the back and up underneath the telescoping cover, whatever kind of lid you have, they're looking for an opening that would allow them to get to the resources without engaging guard bees, even if the colony is small. So we're gonna exploit that by reducing the entrance. And the other thing is you can, I did a drawing 
and it's not very complicated, of course, but here's what I would also recommend. If you've got an entrance on a landing board and it's being robbed here, you can just cut two by four blocks of wood, just set them in place on the landing board right up against the hive and reduce this entrance. One of the reasons that that's also a great way to go is because you didn't just reduce the entrance, you reduce the opportunity for wasps or other honeybees to come in from the side and then when the guards over, over here occupied, they can't scoot in through the side really quick. Because what we did is we extended that corridor out straight and we eliminated the landing board space for them. So now the landing board is directly in front of the entrance. So again, a better opportunity for those bees to defend their colony if they're resident bees. And then that can be seasonal. So once they're at full strength again, or once robbing pressure is off. For example, you hit springtime, the bloom is on, everyone's fat and happy, bees are not defensive, they're not stressed, and uh, they have plenty of resources coming in. That's when robbing falls off, and then that's when you can go back to reconfiguring your entrances and things like that. But for me personally, here in Pennsylvania, I have reduced entrances year round. And it has not negatively impacted honey production, for example. So that's, uh, that's my suggestion, three entrance modifications, but the short answer on the robbing screen is those are designed to be temporary and eventually they fail also. That's why it's a temporary setup to defend. That's what you do when you're actively getting robbed. Question number two comes from Steve, Evergreen, Colorado. This is my fifth or sixth year into my beekeeping adventure and I live at 7,500 feet in Colorado. I lost both of my hives suddenly this year. Saskatraz 8 frame, insulated, and the hives were weak in September and we have an extremely cold November this year so I was worried. I used Broodminder to monitor my hives and they froze a couple of weeks ago. Should I use a hive heater? And if so, could you recommend one? Okay, so for Steve in Evergreen, Colorado, um, there are a lot of other questions that I would ask about these colonies that failed, the sudden failure. And certainly, rapid drops in temperature can challenge them, and it also depends on how many resources they had available, mite loads, what's the disease history of the colony, what's the queen history, and are they queen right? There are a lot of things at play in a colony's ability to survive winter. And the reason I bring that up is I've had late season swarms that were very small. We put them in five frame nucleus hives without insulation. I realize I'm not at your altitude and probably don't have your temperature parameters. But um, it's amazing what a tiny group of bees can survive if they're queen right and healthy and not otherwise impeded reproductively by the varroa destructor mites. So, but as far as the hive heater thing goes, so here's the thing. This question comes up eh, pretty often, actually. People want to heat their hives and put a heat mat or a light bulb or something like that under it. And I always say that um, if you can get your bees to work without that, you're going to be well ahead uh, because it's one more thing that they don't depend upon. And I don't want, and I've said this before, I don't want a bunch of wires and cords running through my apiary in order to sustain hives with electrical heat supplements and things like that. And so for me though, if it's not broken, I don't have to fix it. But that doesn't mean my mind is closed off to it. So what I did is I did a quick search around. 
uh, to see who's using hive heaters and what it looks like. So I watched a couple of videos and that's going to be today's shout out, by the way, just so you'll have kind of the big picture. What are you willing to do to keep your bees artificially heated? And so there's a beekeeper called Bug Farmer, B-U-G space F-A-R-M-E-R. And uh, the title of the YouTube video is, Do Beehive Heaters Really Work? And that was November 21st of 2022. So there'll be a link to that video down in the video description below. And I recommend that everybody looking at this, go and watch it. Maybe you're not the least bit interested in adding heat to your beehives. But as I say with a lot of things, there are a lot of hive configurations and modifications and practices in play out there where for me, I try to make it uh, my goal to know as much about all of them, uh, whether I use them or not. And that's so that when people ask a question like this, I can say, yeah, I know somebody that does that seems to work. So that's the bottom line. What is it going to do for you? And given the condition of your hives, is the heat or lack of insulation, are those the only issues going on with those colonies? And if they are, if you're just in some really challenging, really cold environment, then uh, maybe you actually do need some sort of auxiliary heat. And let's equate this to something else. Now, I said I don't want a bunch of electrical cords running around. And I did, because these are backyard beekeepers. We're, we're pretty close to our bees generally, which means we could run, you know, cords. So, and I recently attached a uh, weatherproof outlet out by my apiary so that I could do oxalic acid vaporization treatments, but then the instant vape came out, which is battery powers, and I don't have to use them. So the power is there, but here's another thing. Is anybody else heating their beehives? Is there an older practice of heating your bees for wintertime? And I'm gonna say that there actually is, and guess what it is? It's double-screened divider boards. So these double-screened divider boards the source of the heat is just another colony of bees. And then they put smaller colonies of bees on top of them. Why? Because they're underdogs and they would not likely sustain themselves through winter. So the goal there is put a strong colony of bees, bottom board, strong colony of bees. They're already going to make it through winter. And then they put a double screen board on top of that. And then they put two nukes on it or something like that, or an underdog colony that otherwise wouldn't be able to take care of itself through numbers and resources that they would need to get through winter. So technically that's heating your colony of bees. The only difference is you're using bees instead of light bulbs and reptile heaters and other things like that. So on the flip side of that, it's uh, you'd have to have some way to control the climate, but rather than try to explain it all because I don't do it, I'm gonna send you to Bug Farmer who's going to explain step-by-step step what's involved and how it's working out because I think he's been doing it for a couple of years. So I'm going to give you that link and please say hello. That's the shout out for today. Happy holidays to Bug Farmer and I hope you all will keep open minds and look and see what uh, people are doing and seeing how it's working. So I see that as he's willing to use electricity and run wires and do all of that rigging uh, in order to really do what people have done in the past with uh, larger colonies of bees and double screen boards so that they provide the heat source for smaller colonies that might not make it. So that's actually pretty interesting. And I want to thank you for the question because led me on a look around. For me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. So I think 
Um, the options would be to increase insulation. For those of you who have out yards, no means of getting electricity to them and providing some kind of heater. And uh, insulation, well-constructed hives, and uh, not venting through the top for me. Again, I have lots of friends that keep bees entirely different than I do. And uh, I like that mix-up of ideas, exchange of ideas, uh, adaptations, backyard beekeepers doing things uh, that are interesting and just uh, it'll work until it doesn't or become feasible until it isn't. So see how that goes. Question number three comes from Jack Aru, Commerce, Michigan. I thought of an experiment. It's December, and I wrap an electric blanket around a hive and warm it to the point the bees break the cluster and start moving around. At that point, I could do an oxalic vapor treatment. Can you think of reasons why this is a bad idea? Well, and what's being talked about here, um, for oxalic acid vaporization, we like to do that, by the way, you know, we've missed that window of opportunity here in Pennsylvania, so this may be a whole, whole different situation in Michigan. Um, and the question is, because we need the bees to break cluster so that we have an effective exposed area for the oxalic acid to settle on. It's going to dust all the interior surface of your hive. And uh, so we really need temps in the 50s, low 60s. And I have explained in the past that I base this on landing board activity. So if the bees are plenty active at the landing board, we get one of those warmer days and the sun is hitting that hive and they're just flying everywhere. And uh, then that's an opportunity to treat them with oxalic acid vaporization. So the question here is related to, can we artificially increase the environment that the hive is in so the cluster is broken? And then so we can get that treatment in there and get it all over the brood area, get them to spread out and then take away the heat and let it restore itself to the environmental temperatures. Can I think of a reason uh, that that's a bad idea? I think it, it might work. And here's an example. Most of our beekeeping guidance is coming from commercial applications in beekeeping. So if you had 300 beehives, this is not feasible at all. If you have one or two beehives in your backyard and you're willing to do it and, you know, put your blanket out there, I don't know what the limitations are on heat blankets or how they're going to work in an exposed area like that, but I suppose you could make a tent around your hive. And uh, I would suggest if we were trying it out, you know, if we just sat down at breakfast one morning and you're thinking, I want to know if I can put heat on there and get them to break that cluster. Could I put a heating blanket around that and get them to break cluster? I would be saying, yeah, that might work. But... You would want to put the heating blanket on, let that temperature come up gradually, and you have to have a means of determining what the hive temperature is. And then, of course, it dawns on me, we don't want a sudden drop in temperature while they're all spread out. Uh, because we want the bees to gradually feel the temperature cooling, and then we want them to migrate back and create their cluster and have it not be kind of an emergency situation. Because you're also going to stress them. You're going to hit them with oxalic acid vapor. So I would say then after you did your treatment and the temperature is up where you needed it to be, uh, to leave that blanket on and let it cool down gradually and let them uh, restore to environmental temperatures and then eventually take the blanket away. So I wouldn't do it suddenly, but I hope that Jack will tell us how it works. 
Personally, I you know wouldn't do it, but I don't have a, a severe mite load on any of the hives this year going into winter, so I'm not you know anxious to come up with some way to do that. And I realize the window of opportunity can scoot right past. So if you can artificially heat them up and give them a treatment, then I think you have an advantage there. Question number four. This is from, oh, this person does not want to be named, even though the name is on here. It said, do not want to be on the Friday Q&A show. Just trying to determine the suggested B vacuum. And I think this is a good one. This is a great time of year to shop around for beekeepers and the beekeeper who has everything. What do they need? Bee vacuums. See, I didn't have one for years and years. I saw all the YouTube videos showing bee vacs, how great they work. And I tried a couple of half-baked ones with battery powers and stuff like that. But here's the thing. I watched a video by a guy that invented the Colorado bee vac. And then uh, I decided that thing looks really good, so I got one. And when I got it, the practical application of it was also really good. And uh, see, a lot of the BVACs are bucket shapes, and there's a lot of do-it-yourselfer stuff out there, and they're really great. They work for people. But I was thinking in terms of uh, when you got a minute, less transfer of the bees from collection to delivery on a hive. One of the reasons I like the Colorado BVAC, many reasons, but one in particular, is that it's built on a deep brood box. So it actually is. The vacuum itself is a deep brood box. Then when you get your bees in it, you take the motor off, and it's a screen. So the bees are contained once the motor's off and they're vacuumed into the box. It becomes your transport box. So this works when you're going to get swarms from all over the place. It also works to transport them, and then when you get to the spot where you're going to deliver your bees, and there's, you don't have to bring the hive with you. In other words, now we've got the hive all set up somewhere. Just take the outer cover off, just take the inner cover off, put the Colorado BVAC box on there now. The motor is off, and that's all put away. And then you put the lid on top of that, and then you pull a cookie sheet out from the bottom of it, and the bees migrate down into the other hive. Or... Most of the bees go into the hive that you're trying to box them into. And this is what I like to do. Set the Colorado BVAC box in front of the hive, leaning against the landing board, and let the remaining bees walk in on their own. They're not holding the location. They don't know where they are anyway. And to me, it's a great system because you can get other boxes, extras. So you get the motor and everything. And I'm going to put a link to my video review of it. But I'm explaining the things I like about it. So... Sometimes you show up and there's a swarm on that tree branch over there. Swarm in this tree branch over here, but you only have one bucket. Or you have to dump bees into a frames of hives that you brought with you. This is clean and simple. So I take one of the boxes. I have an extra box now. Collect this one. Pull the lid off. They're screened in. They're not overheating. I put that in there. The cookie sheet's in place. They can't get out. Take the next one over here and vacuum them up. And you can have a hose on it that's up to 30 feet long. And I've used that. I have both. The 30-foot hose and the 12 or 16-foot hose, whatever it is. Super handy, but you need electricity to run it. You have to plug it in somewhere. But by far, that's my favorite BVAC. And I'm mentioning it right now because you can get them at BetterBee.com. And uh, it's a great gift for a backyard beekeeper. And if you're one of those people that... 
wants to get on the swarm list, for example, you have a beekeepers association. That's another thing I highly recommend you join while we're sitting around in the Christmas holiday season. Join a bee club. And uh, you can get on a list and then you'll be on a calling list whenever somebody finds out that uh, there's a swarm somewhere and they need somebody to come and get it. Now that you've got your bee back, you can go and get it. And I always ask them, is it within 100 feet of an electrical outlet somewhere? If it's not, maybe I reconsider, but then I have to go and get it. You know, what's the size of the swarm? I can get it with a butterfly net or something. But if it's BVAC local, like for example, recently we had a local university. They had honeybees in the laundry room of one of their dorms. That is a perfect situation for a BVAC like that. If it's accessible and you can get your hose in there and vacuum out those bees and it's a swarm, you're set. So anyway, it's my favorite one. There's no competition for it. I know somebody else who probably promotes other bee vacs is gonna say, no, it isn't, mine's better. Again, it's gonna be what you personally prefer. How do you wanna do it? Because some of the bee vacs go on straps on your back. This one, the only thing I'm taking up a ladder with me is the hose. The bee vac itself sits way down the hall or sits outside in the yard and you bring it in through or into a crawl space, just the hose comes in. So I think it's a fantastic unit. Continues to impress me all the time and I just love it. Let's see. Yep, I hit all the key points on that. Question number five, moving on. This comes from Freemans8102. That's the YouTube channel. Does it have a question relating to replacing queens? Where the genetic... <clears throat> where the genetics of the hive is a little more aggressive. I'm located in Melbourne, Australia, and I have only one flow hive. The configuration is two brood boxes, one flow super. So my bees are pretty dark in color, which I think may have more Russian genetics than Italian. They are also a little aggressive, even days after inspection. That is even if you are behind the hive and you have guard bees that would headbutt you, I even had one that stung me in my ear. Fortunately, I didn't have much reaction to bee stings. I had only spotted the queen once during the first inspection and I put on my second brood box. It was and has dark markings and since that I haven't been able to spot her. My question is this, if I wanna replace her, how do I do it when I am unable to spot her at all? Both brood boxes are full of bees the inspections are hard to do. Every time I puff some smoke, they go down and then they come back up pretty quickly. Even during midday, there are quite a lot of bees. What do you recommend if I want to do a replacement of the queen? I was thinking about doing a split with a purchased queen, but I wouldn't know which hive would have the queen and how would I eventually replace that more aggressive queen? Looking forward to your expert advice. Well, thank you. Thank you, Frank, for thinking that I might be uh, an expert. At the end, it says Frank Neo. Okay, well, there's a lot of ways now to split a hive and to find out which one has the queen. And this is why it's, it's never a problem for me. And I realize that we're trying to calm the genetics here too. So we kind of want to isolate the queen. But um, here's what I personally do. I do something called walk away splits. So this is, you have multiple deep brood boxes. This is gonna be easy to pull apart. 
and uh, start a separate colony with one of the brood boxes and leave another box of brood on the primary colony, which is with your flow hive. And uh, within 10 days, you're going to know which one has the queen. Now, the, the problem is your queen can scoot out of there, by the way. And it can, especially if they're in the same apiary, your queen could leave and get back to the other hive. Not likely, but possible. That's why we have to be careful because when we stress them out, they can abscond and do all kinds of weird things. So we want to make sure that the queen stays put. One of the ways you can do that is to put a queen excluder on the landing board. You can make one of these yourself, but once you pull apart your hives and we set them together, you can put one of these on each of the hives. This is temporary. All it is is a queen excluder. All your workers can get through. Your drones can't though. So it's limiting. That's one way to go. Another way to go is to just do the split, not try to control the queen at all. 10 days down the road, one of those colonies is going to have eggs and uh, open larvae in it. That's the one that's got your queen. So then you would know the other side is the one that can be uh, made queen right. So you can bring in a queen, but also during that 10-day period, if they had eggs and resources, they're likely building emergency queen cells. So you mentioned that you want to bring in another queen that you want to buy, or you could just let them requeen themselves. That is textbook walk away splitting of colonies and letting them build up on their own. Now an advantage to bringing in the queen that you want to buy is she'll have known genetics, she'll have known traits, and when you put her in, she'll of course go right into laying. So within just a few days, you're going to have uh, an accepted queen that's already in lay. So that's guaranteed. Where if you wait for them to develop their own queen and now we're way down the road and uh, she has to do a mating flight and all the other things that go with that that create variables. I have a really good success. I think people that do statistics on that, 70% of those uh, walkaway splits make it requeen themselves and do fine. So then we've still got a problem. We've got a potentially hostile colony of bees from the queen that uh, you took away or she's in the original hive, but what you did is you divided the bees. So whichever colony is the newest, so you've got the established colony, this is the one we're messing with, and they're a little defensive. So we created a new colony over here with a single box, and that's where we would also dump a bunch of nurse bees over there and everything else to help them out because they're the underdogs. This colony is gonna do the best. There's gonna be some bee drift and everything else. And they will likely drift to the colony, the box that has the queen in it. So that's the other part of it too. They kind of collect towards the one that has the queen right pheromone. So then now you've got fewer bees to dig through to find the actual queen and you can remove her. And then uh, it starts again, unless your plan is after you find the queen in the separate colony, or if the new queen is in the residual colony, the original one, uh, once you kill her, then you can just recombine all of these uh, bees together again with your new queen and everything will be happy. And the reason that works really easily is because they're already genetically related. So they accept one another that way. And this is why it's one of the ways that uh, I suggest when people are trying to get rid of a queen and requeen, if they want to let them do it on their own, remember there's a potential for them not to make it. I recommend taking a nucleus box, just a five framer, and uh, removing the existing queen 
with three or four or two frames of brood and then resources around her in that nucleus box and that's like banking a queen. So you've saved her. She's good. She's over there. She's doing fine. And then we wait to see if these bees produce another queen on their own and if they get queen right. And after a couple of inspections, within a couple of weeks, you'll know if that happened and if everything is good. And if it is, now we've got two colonies. But if something happened and they were not queen right and they, their queen didn't produce and she didn't fly away, get mated and come back, now we've got the insurance policy over here and we can pull more eggs and give them a second shot. Or we can now take the old queen from the nucleus that you made on her frame and bring her with one frame of brood and stick her in here and let the nucleus box that's now underway produce their own replacement queen from eggs that are left in there in a much smaller scale. And I've done it both ways and it seems to work out really well and it's a lot of fun to wait and see how they work out. Backyard beekeepers, you know, it's not a money game. We can play around and if we lose, we lose. If we win, we learn. And either way, you're gonna learn but uh, those methods have worked out really well for me. So that's what I recommend. The other thing is when people are getting attacked, there's always the one or two, just it's, it's a worker that's got an attitude that headbutts you and does whatever. It's not like the whole colony comes after you based on the description here. So what I do is I bring a butterfly net with me. And if there's one hostile bee that's just after your veil or whatever, just get your butterfly net and scoop her and Lay that net right on the ground until you're finished doing what you're doing. And then as you walk away from the apiary, you'll let her right out of her net and she can go right back and hassle somebody else. But it's one way to get them out of, uh, out of the game and from being a nuisance. So I hope that was helpful guidance. Question number six, Ronald from Philadelphia, New York. Have you seen or do you have a standard set of instructions that can be placed on a label for how to decrystallize honey? I'm surprised that Better Bee or other companies have not come up with this yet. And well, first of all, this gets down to labeling requirements for honey jars. And uh, so that's an instruction and that instruction is pretty widely available already. But I understand that sometimes when you're gifting people honey, Especially if you give away raw honey, as I do, because I just want to show you, for example, here. Here's honey that I have that's solidified or set is another name for that. And I scoop it right into my tea. And I don't mind that it's crystallized. Okay. So then the other thing is, this is from the same batch, taken at the same time. This is crystal clear and super golden and everything else. So how do we get this and turn it into this? And how do we reduce those instructions so that you could put that maybe on a little tag on a string around the cap or something like that instead of making it part of the actual label? There are some variables in the temperature parameters when you go to reliquify the honey. And, and what that really is born of is how much of the original flavor enzymes, all the activity in the honey, the less heating that you do, the better it is. So almost if you could talk people into just eating the raw honey uh, in its solidified form, because here it is to you in a little bear. This is a glass bear, crystallized honey in there. Just look at that. It does it on its own. And that's because this is the end of the year honey for us. So that's goldenrod asters and stuff that has a high propensity to crystallize 
The other thing is uh, we don't filter it. We don't, uh, but we screen it, so there's a difference. So I screen it with a 600 micron screen, which still allows it to be listed as raw honey. So one of the things you want to do is preserve the raw properties of your honey. So if you're going to liquefy it, how hot do we have to get this to re-liquefy it? So for me, that's 105. 105 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. When you take, and I know I'm going to narrow this down to a single instruction that you could put on your hive. But the reason 105 works is because if you had a plastic uh, bottle, and that's glass too. Some people have plastic jars and plastic we don't want to heat a lot. So it benefits both the preservation of the plastic to keep it from slumping if you got those little plastic honey bears or something. And it also works on glass then. So if we work to the tightest parameters, that will be the friendliest of the honey, preserving its flavor and everything else. And we go to 105. So then what I like to do is get the biggest pot that you have. And then you fill it up until the water level is at this ring just under the lid. So all the jars that you plan to do, put them all in there, but we don't put them on the bottom of the pot that we're going to heat them up in. What I do is I take these metal rings from these ball jars and we put a bunch of metal rings all over the bottom of the deep pot. Then we set the jars on the metal rings, which creates a standoff. So if the bottom of your pot gets a little hotter, that does not impact the honey or the jar itself because it's not sitting on the bottom. So now we want a big jacket of water around all of it. That's why we put all our jars in at once and then raise the level. And that's why it's going to work for the same size jars at once. You can't put quartz in with pints. And then we bring the water up and then it's a, you can leave it at 105 for a long time. Now, how do you heat it? I mean, I don't know what your stove is like. Our stove has a glass cooktop on it. It's a Maytag stove has an ultra low setting and wouldn't you know it that heats the honey that'll hold the water at 106 107 that's good enough for me so we bring it up to that temperature and it's going to take a couple of hours at that temperature to get it there and then you might be thinking does that ruin the honey it doesn't but if you don't watch it and you don't check the temperatures carefully i recommend that you use an aquarium thermometer or something like that then um, as it gets up there, oh, that just dawned on me. You could almost use an aquarium heater to heat water at a very precise, it just don't. Let me make a note. Aquarium heater, will those go to, they, would they go to 105? I don't know, that's very high for an aquarium, but I'm just gonna check that out. See what their upper limits are. So anyway, on the stove, heat it up, 105, hold it there, and then when it's like, 70% clear, that's when you can go ahead and turn the stove off. And by the way, don't loosen these covers. Keep them tight because remember, it's hygroscopic, which means this could bring in moisture if the lids aren't sealed. And we're heating it, not cooling it, so we don't have to worry about it creating a vacuum. That's what I do, and that still qualifies as raw honey because when you look into what can happen inside a uh, beehive in the summertime, we know that the brood inside a beehive is 94 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the brood. So in the summertime, the brood is near the entrance, and that's so they can cool it 
move air through it, ventilate it, and keep the brood healthy while it's developing, while it's in the pupa state and everything else. However, inside a hive that does not have an upper entrance, way up near the top, what's up there? Honey stores, capped honey. How hot's it getting? Inside the hive, that honey up there can be well over 105. So technically, we're replicating honey that would be as it is inside the hive in the upper super area in the summertime. Now for the label. By the way, please don't put raw honey in a microwave. Don't do that. Put it in some container of water that you can control the parameter. So, and uh, even heat is pretty critical. So on your label, you would say, if solidified, warm honey in water in original jar to 105 degrees Fahrenheit until clear. That would be it. That would be all I would say. But it's not required for labeling. Um, you might need a more bigger explanation than that because you need to explain that we don't want it to sit on the bottom. There are some variables in there. You definitely want to tell people that you're giving your honey to or selling your honey to that if it crystallizes perfectly normal, you can eat it that way. It's going to melt on hot toast. So, and just like putting it in your tea or anything else, unless you're spooning honey and eating it directly, because some people don't like the grittiness of uh, solidified honey. So, but I would talk them into, we have people that only want crystallized honey. They don't even want the liquid stuff. But uh, that's it. It's not a requirement. That's why better be in places like that. Don't list it because the Department of Ag, Food and Drug Administration that dictates how food products have to be labeled uh, for honey, that's not necessary. And it would only apply to raw honey too. So, Question number seven comes from uh, Mark from Salem, Virginia. As far as being sure I have enough beeswax on my plastic frames, do I need to melt and paint the wax on the frame? Or can I just rub a brick of wax across the frame? I have previously been using the rub method and I wonder if the flakes of wax that the rubbing gives may actually be more directly useful to the bees. And then I would also not have to go through the melting aspect of adding the wax. Thanks for all you do. Okay. So beeswax on foundation. So if we talk about plastic foundation, just for illustration purposes, this is um, drone comb. That's why it's green. It's very distinctive. The drone cells that's embossed on the bottom are larger in diameter than uh, worker cells. And this is made by Acorn. The whole thing is heavy waxed. So here's the simple basic guide. You can, I've done what you described, but it's in reused uh, frames. You can rub it on there and you leave little chunks of wax everywhere. And the bees do reassign and recommit that wax to their cell construction. But if we wanted to get right down to it, now the good news is they're using that. I think a lot of beekeepers have purchased uh, plastic frames that claim to have beeswax on the surface only to have their bees avoid the plastic and create a second comb with an airspace between the plastic and the comb. So what they do is they, 
if they're rejecting the plastic that you have, they still attach to this, this back bar, the top bar of your, your frame here, and they bring it down, but they avoid mounting it, which is what we want them to do, onto this surface. And that can happen when it doesn't have enough wax on it, or if the wax is questionable. Unbelievable, but true. Some people try to get away with not putting real beeswax on there. And why would they do that? Well, because real beeswax is expensive to the bees and to buy. So there are tests that you can do. If you want to do backyard beekeeping for fun and a question like this comes up and you're scratching your head, I wonder if I'm really ahead of things by either dipping uh, the frames, if I have a tank big enough for that, or if I'm rolling it on and putting a nice heavy coat of beeswax on there, or if I just take a block of beeswax and rub it back and forth until I see it on the edges of all of those uh, embossed uh, cells, right? Do one of each and put them in a hive and see how they do. That's what I do. You know, if I have questions, I just make comparisons. And if you find out that they're drawing them out just about the same, then... I don't think you do have to paint it and roll it on there. I think you are in a situation where you can get away with a much cleaner uh, thing. So anyway, one of the things I want to talk about, though, when people are melting down their beeswax, because this is one of the ways that you can get your bees not to be that interested in it. So if you've ever picked up a little bar of beeswax and found that you can scrape it with your fingernail or whatever, and it works really easy to the point where you can almost push your finger into it and dent it, and then you get other beeswax, it's 100% beeswax, and it will flake more than nice and you can't like scrape it smooth, it almost chatters. Or when you go to snap the bar, does it seem really brittle? Or does it bend a little bit and then snap before it cracks? There are differences, and by the way, when you're melting that beeswax that you collected from your beehives, if you use a high temperature when you melt it, you're affecting the fragrance of the wax. Because, by the way, the fragrance in your beeswax largely comes from propolis. That's also in your hive. It's not straight from beeswax. So that great smell that you're getting, do a sniff test on brand new wax comb drawn by your bees. Smell it. It really doesn't have much of a smell. Now, rendered beeswax is nice and yellow because it's got some purples that smell that. Mmm, smells great, right? Your bees are sniffing stuff too. Bees are well aware of what's in your beeswax. So, for example, if you can melt beeswax at 144 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 62 Celsius, that's where it begins to melt. Just like with the raw honey that we spoke about before, if you can keep those beeswax temperatures down, let's not be in a big hurry. We know more temperature will melt it quicker. And of course, your temperature to avoid is 392 degrees Fahrenheit or 200 Celsius because that's when it could spontaneously combust on you. But well before that, you ruined your wax. That's right. You created brittle beeswax. Not only that, it doesn't smell good anymore. Not only that, your bees won't use it as well. That's right. So if you can just keep your parameters, you know, 145 to 152 degrees Fahrenheit when you're melting your beeswax, it's going to take a little longer. But you're going to find out it retains more of that original scent. It's going to feel more workable. And if you're rubbing it on foundations and things like that, 
then you're going to also appreciate the fact that it leaves usable, workable wax on there for your bees to go after. So this is an experiment that you can do. So if you melt your beeswax and you take your beeswax up to 200 degrees, let's say, and save that off to the side, and then you keep another at 150 and melt it there, keep that off to the side, and do the same test I described before. Rub those on one side and rub the softer stuff on the other side and see which side your bees go after first and see how they draw it out. Then you're on to something else. It always plays out the less you alter a material that comes out of your beehive, the closer it is to the way the bees prefer it. And therefore, I think it's better all the way around. And with the beeswax stuff, it's conspicuous. You will find out when you overheat beeswax, it does a lot of things to it that are undesirable. So if you're a candle maker though, maybe you want it to be stiff or more brittle. Maybe you don't want it to bend a little bit or easily then you would maybe heat that beeswax more, but that's not going back in your beehive. Food for thought all the way around the barn there. Number eight comes from Ellen in Missouri. It appears like you frequently wear a new bee suit. Do you wash those and they stay that clean? I know you said we can use bleach on them. Is there any other secret to keep them white and get stains out? There are some stains in, and thanks for noticing, by the way, that my bee suits are really clean. I do have a bad habit of just grabbing brand new bee suits off the rack. And that's because in the Way to Be Academy building, we have every size bee suit out there, all the way down to toddler size with little mittens. So yeah, it's handy sometimes, especially if I'm making a video, just go grab a brand new clean jacket, put it on and use it for the video. But some of the stains that you get in your bee suits will not come out. Propolis in particular is just there like forever. However, I'm going to explain washing your bee suit. This is what I recommend and it is right here and I had this. I didn't have to buy it to answer this question and this is Tide Free and Gentle. Well, what does it matter if we use Tide Free and Gentle or something else? Oxyclean, for example. What I'm going to boil this down to for you is that here's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid the things that are not in this. So you don't necessarily have to just get tied, but please consider free of dyes, free of perfumes, and you don't want soften fabric softeners and things like that in any soap or detergent that you're going to use on your bee suits. That's because we all know the person that's got some kind of particular cologne or something on, and the minute they're in the bee yard, the bees are after them. So the smells in your bee suit will have an impact on how well you're received by your bees. So that's kind of important. We want to keep all those things out of there. So that again is tied free and gentle. And I'll put a link to that. And I learned about that actually from Terry who owns Guardian Bee Apparel. So I went to I went to them and said, hey, what do you guys recommend? That's what you recommended years ago. Uh, tied free and gentle. So that's what I do. The other thing is you zip your hood off. You don't put that in your wash machine and it does. It goes in the wash machine and uh, just the hood you hand wash. Another thing I like to do is I've got these big Tupperware bins that uh, are outdoors. 
because uh, if you don't want to, maybe you're not allowed to bring your bee suits inside the house. Um, you can just lay your garden hose out in the summertime, which I like to do, and let it all heat up, and then you create a thing of hot water, and you just add it in there, and then you can stir it around with a stick, and you can soak it, and you can just uh, do it old school. And then rinse it all out, and you can do multiple suits at a time that way, and not mix them in with your household laundry if somebody had an issue with you putting your bee suit and your bee stuff with uh, household laundry. So it works really well. Avoid scented stuff. I don't know anything about OxyClean, but uh, that's why my suits look so good often though, as I am just grabbing it as, as you might have noted, a brand new suit. So, but that's it. Recommended by people who make bee suits. Moving right along, question number nine. Lynn from Maysville, North Carolina. Really excited about getting my first two hives this spring. I have been spending three to four hours every day reading up on bees and watching lots of good content online. I haven't heard much about dragonflies and bees, so I thought I'd ask you. My bee yard sits alongside a one-acre pond, and we have lots of dragonflies. To keep their numbers down a bit, uh, the better to keep them from creating hive issues. I've stocked the pond with hybrid bluegill. They love dragonfly nymphs, and I plan on putting up a purple martin house or two. Can you think of anything else? Many thanks. Up to now, I really liked having lots of dragonflies, especially when they keep the mosquito population down. I just don't like the thought of them gorging themselves on my bees. Okay. Well, Lynn, I don't know if you're going to like my answer. Because <laughs> dragonflies are awesome. And uh, we've all seen it. We get a little troubled. You know, when we get bees, we start thinking, I just want to get everything out of the world that's going to negatively, potentially negatively impact my bees. I just want everything to be perfect for my bees. And I'm going to modify the environment to support bees and nothing else. Now I'm not saying that Lynn is that extreme. But when it comes to dragonflies, you gotta really spend some time watching dragonflies, seeing what they do, how they do it, and how amazing they are. And as you already noted in this right here, they keep the mosquitoes down. Dragonflies are apex hunters in the insect world and I think we should probably support them. Now, that doesn't mean we ring the dinner bell and try to get them to come after your bees. I mean, I've seen it. Some dragonflies are big. And one year in particular, this didn't happen every year, but they came like a squadron. And they were probably 12 feet in the air over my backyard apiary. And they seemed to be just, you know, hunting. Now, I was trying to, as I often do, see what they were hunting. Because we can often think, they must be hunting my honeybees. And then we try to see if they're actually grabbing bees. And some people find, like you named purple martins. There are some people that will say that purple martins also eat your bees. So, uh-oh. Now, do they eat the worker bees? Here's where people also find comfort. Now, they only get the um, drones. So maybe the dragonflies are also only getting the drones. So we kind of have to look at it as uh, what's the benefit of the dragonflies? Pretty broad in scope. Right down to the ones that are in the pond out there because they're also eating mosquito larvae, but then your fish are going to do that too. That's why we have, we've stocked our ponds as well, but we always have darning needles and other dragonfly species around. And uh, it's great to have them because they often go head to head with wasps too. 
So I think actually, I don't think they're a huge threat. I think if you keep your colonies super healthy and they're reproductive and they've got a lot of worker bees generated out there, I think on the list of things that are working against our bees that the dragonfly is kind of at the bottom of the pile. So I recommend doing nothing about dragonflies, except observe them, see what they're up to. See if they're really eating bees. Dragonflies can eat on the wing. They're one of the few insects, if there are any others, that fly backwards, that hover perfectly. You know, they're pretty amazing. So I think appreciate the dragonflies and let them be. I don't think they'll put a huge dent in uh, your bee population. And maybe rethink the purple martins if you don't want them coming after your drones and stuff like that. Because we had uh, barn swallows just flying through the bee yard back and forth. And I was, again, trying to see, are they getting drones? Do these birds know the difference between a drone and a worker? I mean, this is why... I wanted to bring in an ornithologist. I wanted to get one from Cornell's Department of Ornithology to talk to me specifically about different bird species that uh, predate upon venomous insects. So not just the honeybees, but uh, all the wasps and hornets that are out there. Don't have anyone yet willing to do it. So here's question number 10, moving on. This comes from Renee Allen, it looks like, 6405. That's the YouTube channel name. Do bees still do cleansing flights in the dead of winter? We can get to seven here, and I find dead bees five or six feet in front of the hive in the snow. Okay, so here's the thing. <clears throat> Not all flights out of a hive in the wintertime are cleansing flights. And that's why we get these warm days, and uh, you know we get all excited because we get out there and we see all these colonies and they're flying and then we see dead bees in the snow. You see that little shotgun pattern in the snow out in front of your hives? And you think, oh yeah, they're alive. That's to me what it means. So it means that they're doing well. And But if it's not on one of those warm days and you still find a couple of bees out there, remember that honeybees practice um, kind of hive immunity. So they protect themselves as a superorganism. And the way they do that too is one of them is older at the end of its life or it's sick or it's diseased or something. So any, any number of things could be wrong with it, but this bee is at the end of its life. If it can, it will get out of the hive. And if it can get out of the hive, uh, it'll land in the snow and then it has no plan to come back. We've met these bees uh, in the snowy backyard before. And that's when you pick them up and you think, oh, they're struggling in the snow and they're, they're creating a melting spot and they're sinking away and you pull them up and you put them on the landing board and then that bee flies off the landing board again and hits the snow over and over. That bee is trying to not go back. They have their own reasons sometimes <clears throat> for not going back. So that's why I would suggest, and I don't know this absolutely, but if it's too cold for cleansing flights and you see a bee leave the hive anyway and just land in the snow, it is trying to remove itself. That's my first guess. It's just trying to remove itself from the uh, colony. And I don't think uh, it's really a cleansing flight. <clears throat> now, what's the difference? I just thought of this too. If it is a cleansing flight, what would you see in the snow when it landed? 
a tan spot. So, if it just flies out, lands in the snow, and melts away and dies, and there's no tan spot, that's just a bee getting rid of itself. There you go. Tan spot, cleansing flight. Bee just leaving the hive because it's at the end of its life. Some bees do die inside. They don't make their way out. That's why we have undertaker bees and they have to be dragged away and everything else. But that's what I would say the difference is. Question number 11, last question of the day. This is from Oak Point Honey Company. That's the YouTube channel name. I've read kind of strange question today. It was stated to me to use food grade salt about a quarter to a half inch deep around my hive to kill off the small hive beetles as they try to pupate. Do you have any experience doing this or have thoughts about this working? Thank you. Okay, there's some interesting parts to this, right? Small hive beetles, first of all, if you don't know, I mean, I don't deal with them here. Weather like this right now is knocking them right out because if they're pupating in the soil right now, uh, they only go, you know, 10 centimeters or so into the soil. So the frost line, when it gets really cold or get a really hard freeze, what are the chances of those pupa making it? Hopefully none. So anyway, salt, a quarter to a half inch deep around my hive to kill off small hive beetles. Does that mean we're coating the entire ground with salt? Are you creating a barrier that then when they go to the ground to pupate, they can't cross this barrier because it's all salt? I have questions about it. So I have to say, salting the ground around your beehive will serve as a weed killer. So it's gonna kill all the grass and everything else. <clears throat> these little larvae are movers. Now, most of them will enter the ground within 36 inches of your hives, and this is based on research done down at the University of Florida. And uh, Dr. Ellis uh, has documented that those larvae can cover huge amounts of ground. They can cover long distance. So, for example... If this was not a surface salt barrier that they actively had to crawl across, I think, I think that's easy to figure out. Now I'm thinking about it again. So if we made a circle of salt and we get small hive beetle larvae, because that's what we're talking about, they're that little worm stage, and they can look a lot like young uh, wax moth larvae, wax worms, and the difference is get the small hive beetle larvae, get the wax worm larvae between your fingers and roll them, the uh, waxworm larvae will smush up really easy. And the small high beetle larvae will feel like they're made out of little rubber. So they're tough little customers. Which makes me think that they would have no problem crawling right over salt. So you would have to go back uh, to the... And the question is food grade. Who cares if it's food grade or not? It's salt and it's designed to kill them. But um, you'd have to go back to the original person that makes a suggestion like this. And always ask, huh, how did you figure out that that works? I mean, I know slugs aren't going to want to crawl over a bunch of salt because then they're going to get all oozy and salt's really bad on them. But they're far different 
from the larvae of small hive beetles, which are really tough and they're not all slimy on the outside. I'm going to just speculate, but this is a great question for Dr. Jamie Ellis, but I'm going to speculate that salt on the ground or salted ground or any of that, that little larvae is just going to scoot right over the top of it until it finds suitable soil and then it's going to start digging in. Because they'll go, you know, if most of them are going to be within 36 inches, that's a lot of salt, by the way, if you're going to cover 36 inches to prevent them from going in. But that doesn't mean they can't go further. They stick around within 36 inches if they find suitable soil conditions. If they don't find it, they keep hauling until they do. So I think it's not worth the salt. Not worth the salt. But uh, again, I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking about it in my head. I'm thinking about the way they behave already. Uh, if you have small hive beetle larvae, it's an easy test. Dump your salt in a little circle so you save a bunch of it and dump out your larvae on the ground in the middle of that circle and see if those larvae scoot across that little barrier. This is a very easy thing to um, figure out. The other thing is, because this person specified food grade salt, you have to go with what they specified if you're going to challenge their premise. So... You want to get some good old Morton food grade salt and then get regular salt too and see if there's any difference at all. So do it all. Make a YouTube. Put it out there. If it works, then there must have been something behind it. But on the face of it, ah, it sounds like you would have to refresh that a lot and it's going to take a lot of salt. So that's it for today. We're in the fluff area here. So don't forget that the shout out and look down for the link before is for bug farmers. So for those of you who want to experiment with heating your hives or trying ways to warm them up artificially instead of using a double screen board with a, you know, a box of brood underneath or a strong colony of bees. See how that's working. Check in with them. Say Merry Christmas from me and uh, keep on doing it. We need to have people in backyard beekeeping that have the interest and the capability to test out different things and then share with everyone how it works. I like knowing stuff. I'm not going to do it. It would really have to. Now I'm just personally, I'm not going to do it because I don't want a bunch of electrical wires out there and everything else. And because the bees are making it on their own, but I am curious to see how it's working. So the other thing I'm doing this winter is part of my fluff section here. Think about plants that you're starting indoors that are for bees, perennial plants. So I'm doing that this year and uh, I'm making a video about it. It's going to be extended. But if you are starting plants, are you starting hyssop or something that's going to work well for your bees, but also that will survive inside your house in the wintertime for several months? And so to do that, I have fans because I found out that fans have to move these little plants so they're a lot tougher and the lighting is all on a timer. So this is the first year I'm really doing it right like that. There's a company called Vivo Sun, V-I-V-O-S-O-N or, or S-U-N maybe. But those are indoor like drapes and like a building within a building. So some people run fans in those and because the surfaces are all reflectorized, you know, they get light from every direction and the, the plants don't lean in all these different directions as they reach for light. And so I'm curious if you have a system in your house, if you're maybe a grower and you're growing uh, perennials that are good for bees, how are you doing it? And if you've made a video about that, please share it 
and uh, I'd like to see it. I'd like to check it out. But for me, I'm growing hyssop inside. They're that tall, but it's 100% germination. They're doing extremely well. But then there are a bunch of different varieties of hyssop. So there's agastache and all this other stuff, but I really want to go big on hyssop next year because of the potential to provide my bees with nectar from June all the way through October from a single plant source. Now we want diversity in the environment, of course, but when it comes to nectar, a nectar source that's abundant is really gonna boost the bees. So the history on hyssop is really good. It's recommended by the Xerxes Society. And uh, that's another book I recommend. It's 100 Pollinator Plants and it's recommended by the Xerxes Society, hardbound volume. Really good stuff. So other than that, I'm hoping that uh, you all will have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and uh, I'm glad that you spent your time with me here today. Don't forget to subscribe if you're not a subscriber because we have cool things coming up. And uh, I want to thank you for being here today, and I hope that your bees are handling this weather if you're part of this major storm that's moving through the United States. So have a fantastic weekend. Thanks a lot for watching. <music>